Welcome everybody to episode number eight of my little podcast. Um, I am Glenn Hallam and I am coming at you from Weldon in Northamptonshire, which is a small village getting bigger, a small village uh, just the other side of Corby. Um, now, um, firstly, I have to say it's been a while since I've done a podcast but my hat goes off to those of you that do it on a regular basis. Um, it is very time-consuming, um, and uh, the effort that needs to, you know, for those people to bring podcasts to you um, is amazing. So please, you know, search through your podcast app and listen to some of those, um, you know, those podcasts that people do. Um, there's kind of every subject that you could ever imagine. Um, and uh, it, the work involved is, is amazing. So uh, congratulations to you guys. But please support them because um, without your support, obviously, they cannot do them. Um, why have it, Why has it taken me so long to do this? Well, yeah, of course, we all have priorities. And basically, my priorities are looking after children and teaching them music. Um, I've had actually a good 2021. And being the case is that that I've always enjoyed my teaching. But um, early March, we started back when the restrictions lifted. And I was immediately asked to do some classroom teaching, as well as the peripatetic lessons that I do on guitar and drums. And um, so that was a not only a challenge for me, but um, something to tick off my list that I wanted to do. Um, we we have to support the, the, the teachers. I have to say this because now I've experienced actually classroom teaching. Um, they are amazing. You know what they do. They're looking after your children. They're educating them. They're encouraging them. Um, they're doing all those things. And you know, over the pandemic, uh, we can't not mention the pandemic, can we? Every time we talk, I think somebody mentions about COVID. Um, this will be the only mention of it, I promise you. Um, so, you know, mental health has been a big issue for a lot of children, and uh, getting them back into school, well, it's a little bit of a sigh of relief for sure um so not only that have i've been doing um the classroom teaching but i've also been studying uh, over the last two three years now because of the pandemic i've been studying my teaching degree and uh, that has finally come to an end because at the end of november i did my uh, final exam, which was a practical exam, um, it went very well. I thought it went very well. Um, I'm yet to receive my result from that. Uh, fingers crossed, should be okay. And where that leads me, I don't know. Um, maybe do some more classroom teaching. But what I've learned from doing that um, is, you know, a different approach to my lessons and hopefully get the most out of my children. And of course, adults. You know, I have, I teach over 40 students a week, uh, the drums and a few guitars. Um, and, uh, you know, if I can get them playing and really kind of, as I get older, replacing me <laughs> with, uh, you know, my gig in life and whatever, but, uh, we'll see how that goes. So that has been really cool. Um, as well for 2021, I had a phone call one day, um, asking if I would play drums on a record uh, from a local studio that I quite often rehearse at. I've known uh, the gentleman's name is Dave and the studio is Beck's Recording Studio uh, in Wellingborough. So he phoned me one day and he said, right, I said, we're having trouble with the drummer and uh, would you kindly come and, 
you know, record the track and see what they think? Well, of course I said yes. Well, further conversations with the guy at the studio, with Dave at the studio, uh, it turned out to be um, a gentleman called Ronnie Harwood. Now, Ronnie Harwood might not immediately come to your head as if to say, oh, yeah, I know that is, uh, and I know that who that is. But Ronnie was um, the guy that wrote You Drive Me Crazy from Shaking Stevens. And uh, he also wrote many other hits um, in the rock and roll world, such as um, God Bless Rock and Roll from uh, Bill Haley. It was one of the actual last songs that Bill Haley did before he passed away. And so to find that out, I was like, wow, you really want me to do this? Now, it was the, the, the truth behind that was that they were having trouble with uh, drummers that were playing that weren't really getting the sound that they needed for the record. Well, anyway, cut long story short, um, I did the record and uh, he liked it. Um, because we kind of upped the game a little bit, some other people were asked to play the record and replace the original demo. And um, so we had people like Bob Cotton from the Jets was actually playing the bass on it. Uh, there was Shaking Stevens' piano player on it. And so it was a big deal for me. Um, but yeah, cut that long story a little shorter. Um, I'm on that record. I'm waiting for that to be released and see what's happening with it. I don't know. There are rumors, but um, I can't uh, divulge in that right now because I have no idea where it's going to go. Um, so overall, not a bad 2021. Um, to, to to further that story a little bit, um, I also managed to, off the back of that, was there was another writer that was doing an album who had a record deal and he asked if I would play one of his records. He was also having trouble with the drummer. And um, I'm now in that band. <laughs> I'm due to go into the studio uh, with them in a couple of weeks um, to record. I've, I've been sent some demos and that, that have literally nothing on them. It's just uh, um, his name's Dave as well, singing with his guitar. And that's it. And that's what I've got to develop that and see what we get out of that so that's quite exciting um so that's a good start to 2022 now um obviously trying to get that in and and with your work schedule and all the teaching that i'm doing um yeah i'm busy so hence the reason my podcast is uh kind of took a back seat really so uh there you go i was oh i almost feel like i'm apologizing to my thousands of listeners which I don't have. <laughs> but there you go. Anyway, I'm having fun. So um, my last podcast in episode seven, I talked to one of my big heroes. And if you've watched it or, or, or listened to it, please go back and listen to episode seven. Flute Varnfield, um, a big hero of mine um, in the drumming world. And it's an, we have an interesting chat about everything. So go, go, and, go and check that out for me as well. But um, inspiration from our heroes, I've had many. And... If I think back and, you know, some of them heroes that just I just still to this day, all these years on, want to be like them. And, um, you know, the 80s was a great time for me. You know, it was a it was a decade of discovering music, discovering what I liked in music, what I wanted to play, what kind of character I was going to be as a drummer. And um, so Flute, you know, in my last interview, helped me massively with that. 
Um, but then I kind of moved into the 90s and I was on my own, really. I didn't, um, I think at the time, Flute had moved away and we were in less contact than we were before. But I still had that drive of being the best drummer that I could ever be. And, you know, somebody told me a long time ago, you know, you're only as good as the people you play with. And and it's so true. Um, so I remember um, hanging around in my last podcast. I keep referring to that because it's a carry on from the story. Um, the bunch of guys that I was playing with, we often um, they were just doing the pub stuff and, and, you know, typical Hotel California and that kind of thing. Um, but we'd often come across another bunch of guys who we'd get together and play with. Well, the bass player um, at the time was a guy called Chris Willis, and he lived in Wellingborough. And he was he was he'd got the like the Fender Precision bass and and in that scenario. But then it turned out that he was heavily into rock and roll, and he was into rock and roll that much that he'd learnt to play the stand-up bass now you've got to bear in mind that that time I hadn't really come across that I'd listened to early Elvis records and didn't really think about it what kind of instruments they were doing what kind of sound was it important I just liked the records and that was it so I remember um, a place called uh, Urchester which is uh, not far from here about a half an hour's drive away from here and there was a pub called the Crow's Nest and the crow's nest was um, it kind of it was your typical like lounge bar at the front kind of scenario. And on a Tuesday evening, um, the lounge wasn't being used, so you could hire this lounge, and you could go there to jam. And we did. Now Chris invited me uh, to play drums with them. Now he'd got a bunch of other guys together who I didn't know, and. I went along. Of course I did. It was playing music. Um, it was something different. I was on this mission to discover other things. And um, so we arrived there and, and we were playing uh, typical pub stuff, you know, all right now, free, you know, that kind of scenario. But then he brought a friend with him. And um, this friend was Pete Turland. Now, Pete Turland was an incredible musician. But at that particular time, I didn't really know or get what it was all about. But he brings in this double bass. Now, bearing in mind, Chris had one as well. So having not seen these things, um, you know, two people were in the same room with a double bass. Now, I didn't really think much of it. And my recollection of that particular night is not really musical. It's more about the character that this guy was. I can't remember us actually playing together, although I'm sure we did. Pete Turland, I was around 17 years old then. And um, so he came along, he played with us, I think, um, and then he went on his merry way. I didn't really see him that often after that. And it turned out that he was going to, well, he'd, he'd left the UK and got an offer of a gig out in Canada. And it was quite a good gig. It was a big gig playing to big audiences. And, and for that reason, 
I, he become, I'd met this guy, you know, I was like, wow, I met him that night. But I was hearing these stories um, via this Chris Willis, who was telling me that Pete was doing this, Pete was doing that. Now, um, I didn't really know him as, as well as what Chris did. But there was something that I could relate to um, in the early 90s. It's got to be around 90s. Um, and the, I could relate to it. I wanted to be that guy that was being called to ask to do a tour. So this name of Pete Turlin was thrown around for quite a few years. Now, a few years later, um, having you know discussed this guy quite a few times, he came back to the UK. Now, he came back to the UK because allegedly a tour had broken up. So it was a Canadian band. He'd been in various bands in Canada, but uh, a Canadian band had, had broken up, come to the come to the UK to do uh, Hemsby Rock and Roll Weekender. And he'd done that festival. And, and I think at some point his parents were here. Um, he'd made the decision for whatever reason. Um, he'd made the decision that he wanted to stay here. So I'd been playing a little bit through those years, you know, with various people. But out of the blue, Chris phoned me and said, Pete's back in town. Now, uh, you know, do you fancy playing drums? We'll put a band together, just the three of us. Now, okay, yeah, I'm up for that. No two ways about it. Now, um, he came, I met him. I felt that, that, that I knew him anyway. Um, because we talked so much about what he was doing. But it's what happened afterwards and when we got in the band that things changed for me. Now, Pete came about, we discussed it, we, you know, shook our hands and whatever and met up, and then we started doing some rehearsing. And within a few weeks of him being back, we started gigging the working men's club circuits. Now, when we started you know, he was having to set up a life here as well. You know, I, I mean, he was getting a house, getting a car. He had to find a job because um, he needed the money because he just decided to come back home. Um, he got a day job and we were earning quite good money at the time playing in working men's clubs. So we would play, um, you know, over in Northampton. Um, but what what really happened was is that we we got this bond. I was interested in what he'd done. I did, I was interested in why he went to Canada. What did he do in Canada? I had like five or six years to catch up with what he'd been doing. Why why was he so special? Well, he was playing guitar uh, for us because Chris was playing bass. Although, like I said earlier, he was a bass player. Um, he was playing guitar for us. I'd never seen anybody play guitar like he he did. Um, and he was playing songs that I'd never heard of. Um, but I loved at the same time. They were old blues records, old rockabilly records from the 50s. And, and for that reason, he, he, just, he had that hold on me. Now, through that period, we did a lot of shows and we were doing clubs. But during our time off, I mean, I was working during the day as well, but we'd hang out in the evening. He would have a huge record collection. And this record collection would have, again, all these artists that I didn't really know. And 
but he would play me these records and he said can you hear that sound can he he was he was a musician he wanted me to sound like some of these people on the record and and I did my best to try and do that with a twist on uh, what I did um and so we spent many you know a few beers sitting in his kitchen table with this little record player um playing these records and I was blown away by this um and he had the ability to to you know find the chords play this record make it sound like it was put his little twist on it and you know the band grew the band grew because i was growing as well chris was growing as well it was like we were playing with a guy that was making us better and and like i said at the beginning you're only as good as the people you play with and that was certainly the case now we named ourselves the shakers uh, P.T. in the Shakers, actually, because of his name, Pete Turlin. So it's P.T. in the Shakers. Um, we just got this following of people, only through the Working Men's Club, but we got these following, following of people that would turn up and watch this gig. My mum would come, my stepdad would come. It was exciting, all right? And it was exciting. And, of course, during our long journeys, sometimes we'd, we'd play in London. I got to play in Goldhawk Road, which is where the Stones and the Beatles would always play. And so we shared many of the stages down there. And, and, and again, <laughs> one of my previous podcasts, you know, I was saying about London. London was the most amazing place in the world. And I was playing on stages where, you know, yeah, bands as big as the Rolling Stones played there. Um, so it was it was an exciting time. So so as this grew, Pete wanted to go in the studio. And um, and I'm trying to think back now, actually, um, how many times at that point I'd actually been in the studio. And I can't. And I think it was my first experience of really working and trying to learn what the process was. And anyway, to 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 cut that shorter, um, we would we came out of that studio after a few days, um, playing. Um, it's there's about twelve songs on a demo CD. And now, bearing in mind, we just come out of the eighties, we're in the nineties. Everybody's listening to records on CD as opposed to vinyl. I've got this CD and it has my drumming on it. And I am so damn happy about the quality of this record. Now, um, on the off the back of this demo, and there's a reason I'm calling it a demo, um, this demo, uh, we managed to get Hemsby, which was the big rock and roll weekender. And I do believe it still is. I've been many times. I uh, haven't been recently. Um, I don't think anybody's been recently, but it started up again, I think. And um, so that was the, the big gig for those that played rock and roll music. And that was originally the gig he did before the band split up. And that was the reason he came back to the UK. So we played Hemsby. And um, we did a couple of songs and stuff. And that was my first time that I ever got to sing a song. Um, and it was, it, in fairness, it was um, a, a four o'clock gig. So there wasn't too many people around. But it was, nevertheless, it was a big stage. My drums were mic'd up. It sounded fantastic. You know, Pete's playing through these twin Fender amps. And 
you know, and it's that we spent the next three days there um, and we just had loads and loads of fun. Um, And so that was, I was living the dream. And, And talk about inspiration from our heroes. I knew that this guy had played on all these records previously that he'd been playing on um, during his time in Canada before we got to know each other better. And so for me, it's like playing with the Beatles. You know, he, he was it was that good. Um, and it, But not only that, you know, when you play with somebody, and I think this is a learning curve for a lot of musicians, when you play with somebody that you hold in such high esteem, um, it can make you a bit anxious and a bit nervous. But Pete was the kind of guy that that didn't happen. That didn't happen. And it it was and and the music happened. And it was incredible. Right? So I'm living the dream. I'm thinking that, you know, I'm the best thing ever. My drumming is really coming together. So I thought. But we'll come to that in a second. You know, so I'm I've done I do these gigs and we carry carry on and we're traveling down to London. We kept, we do the Hemsby thing and then um we actually as well, and just coming to my mind now or remembering, we actually did the uh, the boats for a little while where we were um the band that was um playing on the ferries that were going back from the Hooker Holland and the um Zeebrugge backwards and forwards. Um so you'd play one night, have a night off. And and again, the experience of doing that, but also the social aspect of it as well was fun. The people you met, sound checking during the day when the boat was empty and, and, and all that experience. It was, it was quite funny, actually. Um, as you can imagine, a bunch of young guys on a boat. Um, you never know what we got up to, but mostly uh, nothing bad. It was just kind of plenty. We weren't allowed to drink. And what you found, <laughs> uh, right? This I've got to tell you this now, haven't I? Um, you weren't you weren't allowed to drink on ferries because you're considered to be staff, even though you're the musician, right? And the reason you're considered to be staff is because of the safety aspect of it. Because if you're in the middle of the water, um, you can be allocated a lifeboat, so you're in charge of getting the general public onto a lifeboat. Now, you, yeah, I know. And so you had these early morning calls um, to go to the lifeboat training. Of course, we got into trouble because we were never there. Um, so we broke, we broke a few rules uh, in that. But the reason you couldn't drink was that. But, and this is because we did it on a regular basis, you got to know the lorry drivers, the purchased drink and brought you it (laughs) whether this goes on now i have no idea i don't know what the rules are so we got in with this lorry driver and apparently still to this day i don't really know this is true vodka (laughs) you can't smell vodka (laughs) i don't i I think it's untrue actually because i got caught um you can't smell you can't smell vodka so they were giving us vodka and coke so we're walking around with a glass of coke and they're thinking it's just coke we're not drinking because we're on lifeboat duty um 
I go, I go up to a guy and I'm sitting there and he says, have you been drinking? I said, no, we don't, we're not allowed to. And he said, well, why can I smell drink? <laughs> so, no, clearly you can smell vodka. Um, so the, it was funny at the time. I mean, it's totally irresponsible, I suppose, when you think back of it, because you were genuinely in charge of lifeboats. So the last thing you needed was uh, a hangover or to be under the influence of alcohol if something had happened. Um, thankfully, nothing happened, of course. But, um, hey, you can't be too careful. Um, the other strange thing about playing on a boat uh, that I have to share with you is, um, and if I can describe this in a way so you can imagine what it was like, you'd be playing the gig, all right, and your brain thinks you're in any other venue. It's just a stage. So you forget that you're on a boat. And after a while, you get used to the movement of the boat, the, of the boat. And you genuinely think you could be in a bar in London playing a gig. Now, the trouble is, it's only when you look out the windows that are on the side of the boat whilst you're playing, as I did, is that you start realising you're on that boat. One side, you've got sea. The other side, you've got the sky. Because what is happening is the boat is rocking from one side to another. But up to that point, you don't feel it. Then when you see it, your head plays tricks on you. And it's the weirdest feeling going. <laughs> but there you go. I guess you've got to sit on the stage to, to experience that. But it was an amazing time. And uh, it was certainly experience for music as well. Because, like I said, during the day, me and Pete would often um, sit there talking about music, go to the stage, sound check, and um, play some different tunes. And so along with that... We would we would we would talk about these, but after after we got back off that um, particular, I guess you can call it a tour, kind of. Um, we um, we started listening to more music again, and and so it went on. And he introduced, and I have to just say this because um, the story gets a little bit, um, you know, more intense later on. He would. Um, he played with a guy that played on the waterfront in Portland, and that guy was called Harp Dog Brown. Now Harp Dog played um, a Jules a Jules Harp. That's the twangy thing. Um, he would play a harmonica. A harmonica. Can't even say it now, can I? Mouth organ. My father would would call it. Um, so he would play blues harp, and he played for him for quite a time during that period he was in Canada. And um, and again, because Peter played me his music, I loved his music. I, I, I just heard these tunes and thought, I wish I could do this. Now, there's two reasons I'm saying that. Unfortunately, two weeks ago, Harp Dog passed away, and I was gutted. At this point, I'd never met him, but I will, I will put that right in a second. So... Um, you know, I'd listened to his music and it was amazing. Now, the Waterfront in uh, is a blues festival in Portland, in Oregon. And there's the other connection, is that my son moved to America, my eldest son, um, who's now in his 30s, but had moved to America and actually a musician as well, a bass player, and actually got to play that venue. So I was totally jealous. I, I got to know where that venue was. Um, but 
Harp Dog was an incredible, incredible. Um, it, it, Harp Dog, I think it's Harp Dog and the Bloodhounds. Um, that album is still out there. Um, Harp Dog was a very, very successful blues player coming out of Canada, and um, he'll be greatly missed by a lot of people. And such a nice guy. And I'll tell you my uh, meeting of him in a while. Now, so so this point, I'm just reeling everything. I'm reeling everything. I'm just digging the whole thing. I think I'm on top of the world. I think I'm the best drummer in the world. Um, I'm the luckiest drummer in the world because I'm playing with Pete and playing with Chris and we're doing really well. Then comes the bombshell. The bombshell is Pete tells me, I think he phones me up and says, Glenn, I'm really, really sorry. I'm moving to Canada. And so his time in the UK was done. PT Shakers were no PT and the Shakers were going to be no more. Um, Pete had been offered a gig with Ray Kondo and the Ricochets, and th- they were also huge out in Canada. And so, what do you do? You you know, I've built up a friendship with this guy. I don't want him to go. Of course, I don't. I'm enjoying PT and the Shakers and everything we're doing. Um, I can't be that selfish. Um, I he goes. All right. I'm gutted. But the good thing from there on in, um, he's phoning me in the middle of the night because of the time difference and telling me what he's getting up to. So I'm still inspired by him. I've lost my gig. I haven't got any gigs. All right. I haven't got any gigs. So I start going through the papers, the loot. That was it. Um, The loot was a paper. And I remember um, being in Sainsbury's um for a um shopping <laughs> of course what else would you go there for um i was doing the shopping and it was where they used to have the uh kind of when you walked in they'd have all the papers and stuff like that and so you'd look through them so in my <laughs> i can't believe i was that tight i didn't even buy this copy of the loot i actually flicked through the pages and there was a rock and roll trio band that was wanting a drummer and and I answered that advertisement and or diverse. I can't talk this morning. This not enough coffee. I had I answered this advert, and then um, that's another story that we'll come to. And that was wild. And that is the band I am in to this day. Um, but anyway, so um, so I'll, yeah, like I say, I'll fill you in about that later. So. Um, so I got myself another gig as well. But I'm still talking to Pete backwards and forwards. And uh, he's doing really well with uh, Ray Kondo. He sent me the new albums he's done. They are, hell, they are so good. They are just immense. He's playing bass on that gig. And it's just incredible. He's touring the whole of America. He's on CBS in the morning. Um, you know, it's the it's the proper deal. And to be fair... A jealous, yeah, of course, but incredibly proud of that he had that experience and he wanted to do it, but he was good enough to do it. And he still tells me stories of those days even now. Um, unfortunately, another one passed. Um, Ray Kondo passed away as well. Um, but thankfully, um, I did get to meet him as well, thanks to Pete. So 
Um, so this is this all comes in. It's a very in a such a short podcast. It's it's very hard to to over these last thirty years almost to get all the stories in. But um, so so what do I do? What do I do? Well, going back to when Pete was there and before he went, uh, I remember the club. I was at, and this is a very important fact, is that I we, we were playing at Wooden, Wooten Working Men's Club just outside Northamptonshire. And obviously, we'd still got gigs left before he left. So we were playing this gig. And at the time, I'm in between marriages, let's put it that way. And I, I thought to myself, because I thought I was on top of the world, um, I could go with him and just play drums for them. Very naively, but I thought this. So I said to Pete, I said, I'll come with you. And Pete, without even thinking, just turned around to me and said, Glenn, you're not good enough. And for the hero of mine to turn around and say, you're not good enough, killed me. Absolutely killed me. I was sulky. <laughs> I was just mad with him. Everything. I don't know. It just, I thought I was on top of the world. Of course he wants me to come and play with him. I am killer drummer. The truth of it is, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough. And because some of the records that he had played, those drummers were of a class of their own. And Later on, I actually meet that drummer that he's working with, and he was incredible. And even in 2019, when I took a short trip to, to short trip, I took a trip to Vancouver. I met up with uh, Steve Taylor, who was um, the drummer of that band at the time, um, and he, he's just oh blistering. The guy's in his seventies now, and he's still as good. Anyway. So um, I get to the point, I, I'm sulking because he's turned around and said, like, you're not good enough. But like I said, the truth was, I wasn't. Um, so what did I do? So I just joined Wild, all right? And I knew that I wasn't good enough to go with Pete. I got myself a teacher. I studied. I read. I was reading charts. I was killing the rudiments every day. I was listening to all them records that Pete had showed me or, or played me. And I was I was trying to mimic them. I was playing my blues shuffle better than ever before. I would, Previously, I would argue and say, look, he can't possibly play that. Now I was learning them. I was working on my sound. I changed my drums. And so there's two, two things here. It's, it's like I pulled my finger out. I didn't like him telling me I wasn't any good. But I loved him for the fact that he actually brought it to my attention and I needed to make more of an effort. Because if I was going to ever do anything like that, then I would need to pull my finger out, literally. And I did. But I didn't know whether I was successful at that. You know, so we work, you know, we practice, we work, but am I any good? I went with Wild, they, uh, the, I blew them away, they said I got the gig, we did loads of stuff. Again, I'll come back to that in another podcast. But um, I was working, all those little things I was learning, I was bringing into the Wild thing at the time. And I'm still speaking to Pete, okay? 
And now what happens then is that um, I don't know what year we're on now. Gosh. Oh, Pete, forgive me. I can't remember. 2009, I think. We're coming into that. Um, I joined Wild in 2000, so I guess Pete went to Canada just before that, around nine, maybe 99, 2000. I don't know, somewhere around that. Um, and so I'd I'd been working hard, but Pete had moved around a bit because he'd been on tour, so we didn't have those midnight phone calls as much as we'd had before. But I was still listening to his record. He'd sent me those records and stuff. And one day he says, I'm getting married. Um, and he d- Yeah, he does call me and he says, hey, Glenn, how's it going? You know, in his English Canadian accent, um, I'm getting married. And I said, Pete, I'm coming to your wedding. Where the hell are you? Uh, and he was in Edmonton at the time. And he'd been with Danielle, his now wife, uh, for a little while. And they decided that they were going to get married. Um, he'd got a daughter as well. Presley, her name was. Uh, or still is. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is this is a guy that's changed my life. But yet he doesn't know that yet. And to be fair, nor did I. You know, to a point. I was still rehearsing. You didn't know. And that's what I was trying to make the point earlier. You do all this rehearsal. And when you're playing and practicing and making yourself a better musician, you don't actually know until it comes to a situation where you realize, okay, I got this. So anyway, um, I'm with Barbara at the time. And uh, I still am. (laughs) That is my wife. Um, And I said, I need to go to Edmonton. And I need to go to Pete's wedding and uh, he in, in fairness he had previously been over a little bit and with I, I knew his father and um, uh, we, we kept in touch a lot that way um, so anyway we get on a flight we go to Edmonton Pete I'm coming to your wedding fantastic right that would be amazing so we get into Edmonton we go to our hotel I haven't met nobody yet I speak to Pete and he says, this guy called Paul Pagat's in the same hotel. He said, why don't you go get, go to the liquor store, as they call it. Go to the liquor store, get some beer. We're meeting at this guy's house. Um, we're going to have a beer together. And I didn't know who Paul was then. And uh, it turned out to be Paul Pagat, who's, if you do a Google search on him, you'll realize he's just the most incredible guitarist ever. And the nicest of guys, the nicest of guys, I can't tell you enough. Um, and uh, he's just incredible on the guitar. Um, so anyway, I jump in, Paul's truck, never met him. Hey, you, Paul, I'm Glenn. Come on, we're going around here. So I land up then um, going to this house after getting some beer and we play some music. It's a brilliant, I've got... Um, Jan from um, who's another nice guy from a band called the Reagan Cowboys they've got a new album it turns out Pete produced it so they're playing me that I'm just generally hanging out um, I'm in I've never been to Canada well I'd, I'd been to Vancouver previously but I'd um, never been to that area of Canada and I was just felt like I was one of the locals it was great Get back to the hotel. Barbara said, did you have a great night? Yep. Did you? Blah, blah. This, that, and the other. Wedding's tomorrow. We get to the wedding. Um, everybody's there. 50s cars. 
a stage and every musician that Peter's worked with is going to do a spot at his wedding. They're going to get up. I have never met so many incredible musicians, right? And all the stories and all the albums that Peter paid me back in the late 90s when we were doing the transit runs down to London to go and do work in men's club, those guys were there. I'm, you thought I was in awe earlier. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, that's such and such. That's such and such. That's such and such. And oh my God. And then Pete says to me, are you going to get up and play? Okay. So does all this come? (laughs) Does all that practice work? All right. Okay. So I said, yeah, yeah. So I spend kind of pretty much half of that evening just anxious as anything because I don't know when I'm going to get called up. Now, here's the harp dog thing. Harp dog Brown was there. This was one of my favorite records that Pete used to play. Larger than life character. Got a little bit of a beard, plays harmonica, real deep Canadian accent, right? Um, Pete calls me. Harp dog's going to get up. Come on, you play drums. And I'm like, oh, and I'm looking at Barbara, my wife, and I'm going, that's harp dog Brown. That's harp dog Brown. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Again, back to the Beatles. It's like me playing with the Beatles or Rolling Stones. I was just like, oh, my gosh, how am I going to do this? Thankfully, I'd had a few pints of beer, so I was reasonably confident. I get onto the stage. I'm already playing somebody else's drunkard who is blowing me away. Anyway, they start They start playing, and Paul's up there, Paul Pagat's up there on guitar. And then it's sort of Pete throws me some songs and I play along and I'm holding my own. I'm being really jazzy. All the all the kind of swing stuff I'd been working out, um, you know, during that period um, was all coming out in my playing. Um, Pete Pete turns around at me and does a bit after a bass solo that Harp Dog gets him to do. And he said, Glenn, and he points to me and there's video of this and I have to play a solo <laughs> and I'm thinking, holy moly, I've got to do a solo. I, actually, in fairness, thinking about it now, I didn't have time to think that. It just just happened. I did that solo. Everybody goes nuts. Um, and and, and this, is the, this is the killer bit. This is the killer bit. After we'd done that with Harp Dog, Harp Dog turned around. I'd finished the solo, and there's a the, the, for me, it's kind of like a famous scene, a uh, famous saying is that Harp Dog turned around and he went, Glenn on the turbs. And I can't mimic the Canadian accent, but he just said, Glenn on the turbs. And I was made up. And, and Pete was nodding, right? Pete was nodding as well. And, he, and then when we completely, we were changing over, Harp Dog come up to me and he said, I didn't know the British could play drums like that. And, oh, you have no idea. Gosh, I mean, that was like, yeah, you think about the early part of the story. I wasn't good enough. And then the album that Pete had been playing me, the guy comes up to me and says, I didn't know the British could play drums like that. And um, and Pete then kind of got involved. It was his wedding, after all, um, got involved. And I didn't speak to Pete. 
and uh, I was buzzing. I was buzzing. And the next day, we went to um, this hotel where they have a jam, and we was with Paul Bagar, and the three of us were there. And and Pete turned around and said, "Come on, we're getting up." And okay, so so Paul takes the gig. You know, uh, he's playing guitar. Pete's playing bass. Um, he had to play a little Fender one because I hadn't got a double bass. Um, I then played drums and the audience went nuts. It was rammed. They went nuts. They were asking if we were a band and this, that and the other. Um, so I then I then um, started uh, playing with them and I, I was just buzzing. Anyway, it comes down to this one moment for me. Now, I know I keep repeating myself. Back early, late 90s, wouldn't work in men's club. I'll come with you, Pete. You're not good enough. Whilst sharing a hot dog, because there were this great hot dog stand in the car park. So bearing in mind, you'd had a few beers and then you go for something to eat. Hot dog. Wow. Okay. So I decide I sit there having this, this, this hot dog. And Pete says, what have you done to your drumming? It's phenomenal. It has been amazing. He said, it's like you're a different person. And for him to say that was incredible. And that was one of my one of my moments. Now that took me about four or five years to master that and start being respected for hopefully for who I was. Okay. So, you know, I can't tell you that moment is so important. But there's the inspiration from the heroes. The inspiration was actually Pete turning around and saying, I wasn't good enough. Now, this is quite a long story, but I'm going to wrap it up now because there's 20 years of a 30 years of a relationship that I could share each individual moment. But that was the main part of that story is that always believe in what you want to do because you might not be there now, but in the future, you may well be. My future might be more teaching, more classroom teaching or whatever. But I did that and it stays with me and encourages me every day. Now, let's wrap this up. We're telling you what I've done in the meantime. From that, in 2009, Pete asked me to come over again and do some gigs. And for six whole years, I spent going to Canada playing with him. I got to play with Lee Rocker from the Stray Cats. I got to do loads of these venues. Um, and we built up um, the Pete Turlin Band in Canada when I was over there. Uh, we actually did an album. We did Cruising. The album is called Cruising. If you go to my band camp, it is actually there. I recorded an album with Pete. And to this day, he will always be one of my biggest heroes. Um, for that reason, I thank him. Now, Harp Dog passed away a couple of weeks ago and and this is what inspired me to do this i didn't know him that well but i did know him that well because i had that record all the time in the transit i got to meet him i can still hear his voice saying it was glenn on the tubs and what he said about me being a british guy as well british guy didn't know you could play like that it it all meant a lot so yeah I will miss the guy, but there are millions of people that will miss him more in a sense that 
I still have his records and I still have that memory. And so for that reason, I think, you know, when you post on the on your uh, um, Facebook about when people pass away, um, they have different meanings to different people. So um, I will miss that world. Um, I've talked to Pete recently and uh, it looks like we'll, we may go back to Canada. But to be fair, I think we'll probably go and just hang out and watch some bands and, you know, and enjoy just the world. So that's my story for today. So um, I've got more. <laughs> I just got to find time to do it. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, believe in yourself. It's really worth doing. Trust me, it might all work out um you know in the future so thank you for listening um you are too kind i do get the odd little message saying that they like it i hope you do um take care of yourself um we're coming uh up to spring soon so i think uh especially in the uk we need a little bit of uh, warmer weather so hopefully that happens soon so i will see you next time and uh yeah like i said thanks for listening take care bye I tell you what we're gonna do We're gonna dig that for you